Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, well, let's jump into it. So my Easter message this year is entitled, guess what, Beauty and the Beast. And you know, I know when we think of that, we always think of the Disney classic, and there's good reason to believe that. But you may not know that the story is actually 4,000 years old. And uh, they've been telling this story for years and years in one form or another. That's why in the song, it's tale as old as time, true as it can be. It's one of these enduring stories. And the reason it's endured, I think, is because it tells the story of the fallen human condition. The Greeks called it uh, Cupid and the Psyche, and uh, the most famous of them all was, of course, the French novelist in 1740, Villeneuve, and she wrote the version that many of the modern iterations come from, hence the whole French kind of angle, and many of the operas and TV shows uh, sort of reflect that French uh, flair of it. And uh, then, of course, what happened in 1991 is Disney came out with the animated version, which was a huge hit. It's still a huge hit today. And I remember when it came out, because our kids were little. They were probably like five and three, and so just tiny kids, and it came out. We were pretty anxious to see it. As soon as it came out in DVD, we sat down, we watched it with the kids. And I'm seeing this Gaston for the first time, and I'm cheering him on. Like, I think he's the hero. And Kathy keeps on saying to me, Mark, he's not the hero. I said, how could he not be the hero? Look at him. He's awesome. He's big. He's strong. He's good looking. He's smart. He's, he's got it all. She says, Mark, you're going to be disappointed. He's not the hero. I thought, how could he not, not be the hero? I don't know if you've seen the end of the story. He's not the hero. Turns out he's not the hero. How disappointing was that? And I think the moral of the Disney story is this. As long as you're rich and have a nice house, it doesn't matter how ugly you are, you're going to get the girl. <laughs> That's what I got. And, you know, people like Gaston and myself were kind of cursed with good looks. Right? You, you know this. I mean, every morning I look in the mirror and I, and I pray, Lord, why didn't you make me rich instead of just good looking? And, and it has been my cross to bear. We all have our cross, right? And so when we look at this story, I think it's called Beauty and the Beast. But if you miss the part about the curse, you've really missed the whole story. And so as I'm going to go through it, and I love a three-point sermon, I, I want to talk about three things. So beauty and the beast and the curse, but curse, you know how I love alliteration, so it had to be a B. And so I thought, what was a word for curse that starts with a B? And I came up with one, it's, it's blight. I was trying to think of something that rhymed with witch, but I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What's going on in your head? And, and by, the, by the way, how many of you knew who played the witch? Anybody know? Anybody, anybody guessed it? Really? You didn't, well, a few of you got it. You know that was me? Blasted heels? What does a girl have to do to look like a beautiful princess? <laughs> now you all know. How many of you know? Be, knew, be honest with me. How many knew? Oh, a bunch of you knew. So I couldn't hide my true self from you. How about that? So, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at in this order because we're going to reverse engineer the story and we're going to look at the blight and then we're going to look at the beast and then we're going to finally look at the beauty. And uh, we're going to have a passage first and this passage is just a tiny little verse in the book of Romans but I'm telling you, it's one of the richest theological verses in the whole Bible. It's Romans chapter 5 verse 18. This is what it says. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. 
resulting in justification of life. Now, I know with King James or New King James, like I'm reading here, there's all these fancy words like judgment and reconciliation and all these things. And so I'm going to give you the message version by Eugene Peterson. I think he does a marvelous job. And here's how he says it. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all into this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. Boy, that's clear, isn't it? And who are these two men? The one that got us into the trouble and the one that got us out of the trouble. And of course, we know who they are. It's talking about Adam being the first one and Jesus being the second one. And in fact, it's interesting because Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. And there's a reason for that, because there was only two sinless men that ever came into this world. One was Adam, until he sinned. And the second one was Jesus, who did not sin. And Adam got us into the trouble, and Jesus got us out of the trouble. So we got to go and look at the beginning of this and see how Adam got us into this trouble. Incidentally, I find it fascinating that, that Disney used the term Prince Adam for the prince. Isn't that interesting? So anyway, we, we look at Adam, and he's in the garden. He's been created, and he's a perfect man, and he's got it all going on, and he's a sinless creature, and he gets brought this beautiful wife, and they're put in this beautiful garden. We'll talk about that in a few moments' time. And so then he says to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, he says, here's the deal. You only have one rule, one teensy little tiny rule. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One little rule. I know, take a guess. Think he's going to be able to keep it? Think, eh, well, we know the story. So, so we have him having this one rule, don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. How long is it before he eats of the tree? It's in the next chapter. How fast do you read? It's like three minutes, right? I mean, you're reading about it. Don't eat of it. You're into chapter three. He's eating it. And so we have this story. We have the serpent. Of course, that we know that's Satan. He showed up in the form of a serpent. And he comes. Adam and Eve are already there. They kind of beat him to the tree. And they're already looking at the tree. And, and Satan says, has not God said you can eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve says, we can eat of any tree except this one. We're not even allowed to touch this one. And the serpent says, no, no, God knows that you're not going to die if you eat that. But you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So they look at each other. It looks good enough for them. So Eve eats first and Adam eats second. And then everything in all of history changes in that one singular moment. And God has no other choice but to curse them for their disobedience. And so there's, there's three people that get cursed in this story, and, and in this order. The first one that gets cursed is the serpent. Now, we know who the serpent is. He's Satan in the guise of a serpent, which we'll get to later. But, but he curses the actual serpent. And he says, here's what you're going to do. You, you are cursed, and you will crawl on your belly all the days of your life, and dust will be your food. And, and then he also tells them that, you know, there will be enmity between him and the woman, and the woman's seed will bruise his head, and he will bruise his heel. So this, what, this tells me, I don't know how you read this, this tells me that serpents didn't always crawl on the ground because he said, now you're going to crawl on your belly. That's the curse. And I thought about this and I thought, did, did snakes or serpents at one time, did they walk upright? And you know, a few years ago, we had the privilege of being in Egypt and we were viewing the pyramids and the museums and the tombs and there's hieroglyphics everywhere. I'll tell you, it's a trip of a lifetime. Put it on your bucket list. And we're going through there and I saw something that jumped out at me and it was this hieroglyphic right here, the Egyptian snake god. And, and it is known as an evil spirit. And I'm, and I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, 4,500 years ago, 
the Egyptians thought serpents walked on legs. And I'm looking at that and I thought, that looks very realistic to me. That doesn't look like some Egyptian artist, you know, put some human legs on the bottom of a snake. Does it look like that to you? No, 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 that looks like real. And I'm looking at that picture. I'll tell you what jumped into my mind. You'll love it. I'm looking at this picture and I'm thinking, I know where I've seen that before. I've seen this before. And then it dawned on me, Gary Larson's Far Side. Gary Larson always drew snakes upright. They always were upright like this. And they couldn't open a doorknob, but they all knew how to talk. And I thought, this is interesting. The Egyptians and Gary Larson knew something the rest of us didn't know. The, the serpents apparently walked upright and they could talk. Who knew? So that's the curse on the serpent. So then he turns to the woman and he says, I'm cursing you with this curse that you will, your pain in childbirth will be greatly multiplied. Now, for the women in the room, is, is, that, is that true? Does that seem, can you validate that in any way? What do, you, what do you think? Any women would say, yeah, that seems like, the, nobody? Yeah, not going that? Well, let me tell you something. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been in the birthing room? How many of you have actually been in there? It's a trick question. You were all there at one time. You, you were all in the birthing room, right? But, you know, I, I was there three times, and so as a modern man, I know what goes on there. And let me tell you, for those who haven't been there, let me tell you what goes on there. There is blood and sweat and tears and wailing and gnashing of teeth, and they tell me that it's also uncomfortable for your wife. <laughs> that's, that's what I learned. And so, so the, the serpent got cursed, and then the woman got cursed, and then the man's curse is just as interesting, another super interesting curse. He doesn't curse the man. He said, cursed be the ground for your sake, thorns and thistles that will bring forth, and you will sweat by the toil and the sweat of your brow all the days of your life. So the curse wasn't on the man per se. The curse was on the ground and, and his occupation and what he was going to do. And you ask any farmer about this, and they'll tell you that there's something wrong with that ground because it keeps bringing forth thorns and thistles. And if you look at the ag business, they spend, and this is not an exaggeration, billions and billions of dollars every year on pesticides for thorns, for thistles, for weeds, for funguses, for insects, for root rot, for blight. And it goes on and on and on and on. And so the ground has been cursed. But I want you to think about something for a moment, if you will, because what was the nature of the temptation? What was it about that fruit that was so tempting that they were willing to defy God for a bite of that fruit. Well, there had to be something very significant. And you know, go back to the temptation again. The serpent said, you're not going to die. God knows the day you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Did you catch that? The temptation was you can be like God. You can know good and evil. You can know just as well. You don't have to be God's patsy. You don't have to be his boy. You can be your own person. And if you look at the world today, I think that is the height of human arrogance. Today, we have people with that same temptation. I don't really need God. I can do it on my own. And so what God did was he he chased them out of the garden. And the reason was, he says, okay, you want to see how you do on your own? You go ahead and give it a try. And as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? Right? I think that's a good question, right? Because they were in paradise. Paradise was an incredible place. I mean, there was no sin, no sickness, no disease, no pain, no death, no, the weather was perfect. They didn't even have to wear clothes. It was always the right temperature, which tells me also there was no mosquitoes or it wouldn't have been paradise, right? And everything was perfect. And they got ejected from paradise. They got ejected from the garden. Eve became the first woman in history to eat herself out of house and home. And off they went. 
And you know, here's the way I look at this. See if you think the same way. When you look at the world today, and if you travel the world and you go different places, you sometimes feel like you get a glimpse of paradise. You know, how many of you have ever been to the tropics, like to Hawaii or the Caribbean or the Mexican coast or one of those? How many of you have been there? How many of you have ever found one of those beaches? You know, you end up on this beach and the sand is white and the palm trees are there and the sun is out and the water is crystal blue and there's nobody around. You found found this rare moment where you had the beach to yourself and you thought to yourself, I think I just stumbled onto paradise. How how do you know what I'm talking about? And you think to yourself, it's paradise. And, And it doesn't matter where you go in the world, you can actually find these little remnants of what the garden must have looked like. I mean, look at this picture here. This is the Cook Islands. How many of you wish you were there right now instead of here with me? Right? I mean, look at that. Look at this next one. This is Azores in Portugal. It's just breathtakingly beautiful. Bora Bora is magical. Something about that. I mean, look at Thailand. I mean, everywhere you go, you can find these places all over the world. And when you find them, and they're hard to find, they're in the ads, but you can't find them when you actually go there. But if you do end up finding one, you think I'm in paradise. But then what happens? You walk two blocks from the beach and you find squalor and poverty and distress and dismay and murder and violence and everything else. And you've seen it in the garbage and the junk. And look at those palm trees in the background. There's a beach, but you can't see the beach. And you know, we have trashed this planet. It'd be, you know, it's one thing to say, well, it was God's fault or it's the devil's fault. I think we may have some culpability in this. What do you think? Yeah, I think we have something, some small amount of blame in this. So I want to talk about this fruit for a moment because I, I, I don't think we understand the fruit either. So we, you know, there's a little understanding of the temptation. But what was the deal with the fruit? Was the fruit intrinsically evil? No, I don't think so. I'm not even sure it was magical fruit. I think it was a symbol of something. And the symbol, more, more than anything else, was a symbol of obedience. I just don't want you to eat it. There's nothing wrong with the fruit. But I'm asking you to be obedient to me, so don't eat the fruit. And if you do eat the fruit, then you've been a disobedient. And it's not about the fruit, it's about the act of disobedience. You all know what I'm talking about. Because when you grew up, when mama was baking cookies, and you wanted to have a cookie, and they were sitting there cooling on the table, and mom said, those aren't for now, those are for company. Is it because the cookies are evil? No, the cookies are good. Cookies are good, and they're good for you. Everybody knows that. But mom doesn't want you to eat those cookies because that would be disobedient because those cookies aren't for you. It's like like the story of George. George was on his deathbed. He probably only had a day, day and a half to live. And so his wife decided she was going to get ready for the funeral. And so she thought, what better way to honor George than to make his favorite chocolate chip cookies? So she's downstairs in the kitchen. She's baking cookies. And the smell of these cookies starts to waft up the stairway and into George's bedroom where he's literally dying. And he gets a whiff, whiff of them and some strange revitalization comes into him. And he sits up for the first time in weeks and he thinks to himself, if I could just have one bite of that cookie, it might reinvigor me. I might, I might come back to life. And so he manages to crawl out of bed and he, as he gets to the stairwell. He's smelling it ever more strongly and more energy and more vitality is coming into him. He manages to slither down the stairs and he's going across the kitchen on all fours and he's reaching up and he knows if he could just have a bite of a cookie, he might live to see another day and he reaches up and just then the wooden spoon comes down on his hand and his wife says don't touch those those are for your funeral (laughs) it's a true story 
And I did George's funeral a day later. <laughs> so when we look at the first thing, the first thing is the blight, and it's the curse, and we all have a bit of a semblance of that. But let's look at the beast for a moment. Because I don't know if we totally recognize who the beast is. Because in the story of Beauty and the Beast, is the beast the villain? He's actually not the villain. The villain is the enchantress. The beast, in a way, is a victim like everybody else. Now, he was bad like everybody is, and he you know, made some bad choices, and he was unkind. But, but he wasn't actually the villain. The beast actually was under the curse himself. And so when we look into scripture, we discover something about the beast that most of us maybe haven't thought about before, because the Bible talks about the beast. So you go into the book of Revelation. How many find the book of Revelation a little confusing, a little scary? How many? Yeah, it's a little scary, a little confusing. There's all these creatures. But if you read it carefully, it actually describes who the creatures are. So if you go into Revelation chapter 12, it describes the dragon, and it tells us who the dragon is. It says the dragon, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. I think we have a pretty good idea who this is. The dragon is the serpent that was in the garden, and he's called the devil and Satan. It's pretty unequivocal that we know who the dragon is. The dragon is the one. He's the devil. He's the villain. And then you go into Revelation chapter 13, and the Bible introduces the beast to us. And we find out that the beast isn't the devil. We find out that the beast is someone who lives under the authority of the devil or of the dragon. And we find out that he's a human being. And we find out that you read the story and he's some sort of one world leader. Sometimes people call him the Antichrist. And he's this, you know, oversees all the nations. And somehow he has a one world economy and one world government. And he rules over all of that. And then he has this number. And for the followers of the beast, the followers of this man, if you don't take his number, and what was his number? Anybody remember? Yeah, the, the, the mark of the beast was 666, which the scripture says is the number of, who knows? The number of man. It says this number is the number of man. And so it's not the number of Satan. 666 is the number of man. So we know that this beast is, is a man. And, and then he's going to impose upon us that nobody could buy or sell unless you get the mark of the beast, 666. And either somehow marked on your forehead or somehow marked on your hand. And I mean, it all sounds very terrible and, and very, very scary. But here's what we know. This is not the devil. This is some sort of world leader. This is some sort of a man. And this is the mark of man, not the mark of devil. So I've got to tell you a funny story about this because... Uh, Gaston, who is in our show today, uh, was played by Matthew Povey, our youth pastor. He did an amazing job, don't you think? He, he, is, he plays the bad guy so well, so he's been a bit typecast. But Matthew did a great job, and Matthew, we've known Matthew for a long time. He's been in this church for a long time. And uh, when he was going through Bible school several years ago, he used to work part-time at Tip Top Tailors to earn money. And I was in there one day, and I was buying this shirt. I don't know if it was this shirt... But I really hope the puffy shirt comes back. I do have that statement to make. So anyway, I'm buying this shirt. Matt's not serving me. He's serving another customer. And another clerk is serving me. And I want to buy the shirt. And I'm wanting to pay for it. And the clerk says to me, may I have your phone number? I said, no, I don't actually give out my phone number to anybody. And he says, well, we can't complete the transaction without your, your phone number. 
And I said to him, no, here's, here's how we're going to do it. Like, I got this cash. I'm going to give you this cash. And then you're going to give me my shirt. And then if you gave me my, you know, change back, that would be even better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just try to make this deal. I'm trying to be nice because in real life, I'm a super nice guy. And, uh, and, and I have to be on good behavior because one of our young people, Matt, is right there listening and watching this whole thing. But I really don't want to give them my phone number. And he says, well, I, even for cash sale, I can't complete the transaction without your phone number. So then I, I looked at that scanner that scans the barcode, and I grabbed it, and I swiped it across my forehead and put it down. I said, that should be all the information you need. <laughs> and then Matt just cracked up. And if I'd been smart, I would have turned to Matt and said, let's kill the beast. <laughs> but I didn't think of it. And so when we, when, we look at, when we look at this whole thing about the beast and who the beast is, and when you look in the, the Beauty and the Beast story, Gaston thought the beast was the villain, right? Gaston wanted to kill the beast. And he actually said it. He said, everything was fine before you came. And so if we just kill the beast, all our problems are over. And what people have been doing throughout history is they've been trying to kill the beast, thinking if they kill the beast, which is some sort of man, then all their problems are going to be over. But the problem is there has always been the beast. There's this one in the book of Revelation, and there was one in the Beauty and the Beast. And if you look throughout history, there was always a beast, and there's one beast after another, and every generation gets a beast, and every decade gets a beast. And if you look at the 20th century, you could probably name them. You go to the beginning of the 20th century, and you had Joseph Stalin. He killed off 70 million Russians. And then you had Adolf Hitler, and then you had Mao Zedong in China, and then you had a Pol Pot in Cambodia, and you had Idi Amin in Uganda, and you had Saddam Hussein in Iraq, and then you had Martha Stewart in the United States. <laughs> I'm telling you, when she was behind bars, I felt a whole lot safer on the streets. I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you, that woman's always scared me. And, and, and I'm kidding, of course, but, but, but here's the point. There's always a beast. If you were to go to Europe right now, who are they talking about as the beast? Yeah, Putin. Putin's the beast. And, and the idea was, if we can just knock off Putin, all our problems will be solved. Is that true? What happens if you kill the beast? another beast will pop up. It's like whack-a-mole. I mean, there'll be another beast right behind that one. And we make this mistake over and over and over again. And it was true in Jesus' day. Who was the beast in Jesus' day? Caesar. Caesar was the beast. He had come in with his Roman armies and he had taken occupation of Israel and they all wanted to get rid of the beast. And so when they saw what Jesus was doing and his reputation and his notoriety on the rise and his star was rising, they genuinely thought that this man was going to lead them out of the Roman occupation. And when he did not do it, when he refused to engage on a political level, he was betrayed and he was crucified. Do you remember his trial? I mean, Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman, was adjudicating the trial, and he looked at it and he says, I don't see any threat in this man. I don't see any fault in this man. Why are we, why are we crucifying him? Why are, we, why are we convicting this man? He says, I'll tell you what. He turns to the Jews. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll make a deal with you. Every, every Passover, we release one Jewish prisoner. Do you want me to release Jesus? And they all cried, no, give us Barabbas. And you're thinking, Barabbas? Who's Barabbas? Where did Barabbas come from? All of a sudden, they're talking about Barabbas. And Barabbas, of course, was a zealot. He was an insurrectionist. He was in jail for murder because he was trying to kill off the Romans and rout out the Roman occupation and get rid of the beast. Because if they could just kill the beast, all the problems would be over. But Jesus knew that the beast wasn't really the problem. 
And when we look at our world today, do you see, do you see a beast around you? Sure you do. I look, I look south of the border. I, f- I feel really concerned about our American friends south of the border. Because have they ever been as divided? Maybe the Civil War. I mean, politically, they are so divided. They're like right down the middle. And then you have re- de- Democrats who think Trump is the beast. And you have Republicans who think Biden's the beast. And they think if they just get rid of that other guy, all their problems will be solved. Is it true? No, because you're not going to solve your problems Politically, because guess what? You know where the beast is? The beast is in you. The beast is in every one of us. This is what we don't recognize. We're all subject to the beast living within. Now, I know it's in varying amounts, but the beast lives in every one of us. We're all fallen creatures. Every last one of us has a brokenness within us. Why do we, here's my question, why do we loathe the beast in others and fail to recognize it in ourselves? See, what happened during the fall? During the fall, we inherited the nature of the, of the beast, which is the sin nature. This is what happened to us. You know, people, they get all upset about the gospel, and they say, why should I be punished for what Adam did? Well, guess what? You're not actually punished for his sin. You're punished for your own sin. You don't need any his, his help. But you have his nature. You have his sin nature. But here's what people do. They don't recognize the sin nature anymore. You know why? Because our culture has bombarded us with this idea we're okay. You're okay. You can decide on your own what is right and wrong. They call it moral relativism. And whatever you feel is right for you is right for you. And whatever's truth for you, you speak your truth. And if you're good with that, then we're good with that. But just because you believe something doesn't make it truth. And people don't believe in absolute truth anymore. They don't believe in in right or wrong anymore. And people are just going around making up their own rules as they go. And you know what, people? It's not working. It's not working because we've got a lot of broken people out there. And, you know, I, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, and I'll retrace it again. I hear it all the time. People say, well, I'm ba- I don't really need God, and I don't really need religion, because I'm basically a good person. And I think the good I do outweighs the bad I do. And I pointed this out to you before. If you're 51% good and 49% bad, you're still a really bad person. That is a bad person. And what is the acceptable threshold of bad? Is 49 acceptable to you? How about 40? Should we drop it to 40? Would you be good with 40 if your friends be 40% bad? How many want friends who are 30% bad? How many, how many would marry someone who was only 20% bad? How about 10%? Surely 10% is, you know, the best we can do. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. You lie 10% of the time. You steal 10% of the time when you go into the store. And you murder 10% of your friends. You're still really, really bad. There's no acceptable threshold. 1%. 1% is too much. And you know what? We all got it. The be- we all have the beast in us. Every one of us have the beast in it. And you know, if we're really, really, really honest, which mostly we're not, but if we're really, really honest with ourselves, I think if we look inside, we recognize that we are really broken people, that we are seriously imperfect people. And if we could be honest just for a moment and say, you know, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm not great. I got a lot of stuff. And I think the best thing we can do is recognize this because the scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. And there are none righteous, no, not one. Every single one of us are sinners. That's what the Bible tells us. Why? Because we've inherited the sin nature and we have the beast within. And you know what? Once again, if you're honest, you will recognize it at a very early age. I want to tell you a great story about this. So when I was about 10 years old, I lived in this neighborhood, and I went to the school right down the street here. Three blocks from here, there's a school called Oakenwall. And I went to that school, and beside that school, in those days, there was a little convenience store. 
And in those days, you could go and buy chocolate bars and different things there. And a candy bar was 25 cents. The average kid in my age, back in that generation, our allowance was about 25 cents. So you do the math, how many you can buy a week. So anyway, I met this kid uh, when I was 10, and he was 10. His name was Bud. Bud was the coolest guy I ever saw. And every morning before school, he was standing in the lineup eating a candy bar. And I said to him, Bud, where do you get those candy bars? How do you have enough money to buy a candy bar every single morning? He says to me, oh, you don't need money to get a candy bar. I thought, huh? Really? I said, tell me more. He said, come tomorrow, and I'll show you how it's done. So I came to school early the next day, and he says, so follow me. This is how we do. We go into the convenience store, and when the clerk looks away, you grab the candy bar, you stick it in your pocket, and you walk away. So I watched. Uh, he was my mentor now, and uh, you know, leading me into a life of crime. And so, so he shows me how to do it. He grabs the Mars bar, and into his pocket it goes. He turns and walks out scot-free. Now something made me nervous. I'm not sure what it was. And my heart just started racing like a rabbit like this. I don't know what that was. I'm not sure what that feeling was. But anyway, that feeling was there and I was getting so nervous. And I was so nervous I couldn't take my eyes off the clerk. I was just staring at him. And I'm staring at him, waiting. I mean, I must have been the most suspicious kid in there at the time. And I'm staring at him, staring at him. Finally, he turned away and I grabbed something and stuck it in my pocket and never looked at what it was. So I don't even know what I've grabbed. So I go out of the store. I'm sure I'm going to get caught. I get out of the store, and Bud's congratulating me. He's introduced me to this new life of crime, and he's all excited. He's just thinking his protege is doing so wonderful. Now, I don't know what I've actually stolen, so I stick my hand in my pocket, and I pull it out, and I have got the salted nut roll. Do you, do you know what a salted nut roll is? It's salted peanuts on top of nougat. And I thought, salted nut roll? I hate salted nut roll. I mean, I like salted peanuts, I like nougat, but I don't want them together. And I'm looking at this bar and thinking, all that for this? And so I open the thing up and I'm standing, I'm not near as excited as Bud with his Mars bar. And so I take a bite of it and I think, I hate this thing. And then my sister shows up and she says, oh, you have a salted nut bar. I said, do you want it? She said, yes, she took it. Now she's an accomplice after the fact, right? You following this? And then she says to me, where'd you get the salted nut roll? I said, why are you asking? Why do you want to know? I am just racked with guilt. Absolutely racked with guilt. I expected that any time during my class during the day, the police were showing up to drag me away. I got home that night. I was just so filled with loathing and, and guilt. And I'll tell you why. I grew up a Catholic, and this is what I knew. I didn't know a lot of Catholic theology, but I knew this for a fact, that thieves went straight to hell. And now I was going to hell for assaulted nut roll. It wasn't even a Three Musketeers or a Mars bar. Assaulted nut roll that I don't even like and I'm going to hell for it. Can you believe it? And so I'm lying in bed at night thinking, what am I going to do? I'm finished. I'm ruined. My life is over. I'm filled with guilt. Let me tell you something about guilt. Guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. The Jews invented it. The Catholics perfected it. And I'm sitting there wracked with guilt. And then it came to me. And I knew what I had to do. I had to atone for my transgressions. Those weren't the words I used, but the, the concept, right? I'm 10. And so, so the next morning I woke up, and there's 25 cents on my dresser from my allowance. And I took that money, and I was going to reverse the crime. And I was, went into that store, and I was just as nervous. I was probably more nervous than the day before. And I thought, when that clerk turns around, I am paying for that chocolate bar. And so he turned around, and I put that quarter on the table, and I walked away, and I was walking away, and I was almost at the door, and I heard, son! And I turned and looked, and he says, 
is this your money on the counter? And I didn't know what to do. I froze, because if I said no, I was lying, and I was still going to hell. (laughs) So I stood there, and I froze, and I ran out the door, and I never went back in that store for another year. And I thought, I'm never doing that again. Cured in one day. But see, here's the thing. I'm not really cured because I still have the sin nature just like every one of you do. And I just went on to other things, you're right? And we're all broken in our own little way. And there's a little bit of the beast and sometimes there's more and sometimes there's less. But the beast dwells in each and every one of us. So you have the blight, the curse. You have the beast, which is you. Sorry, it's you. And then you have the beauty. And thank God for that. And, and in the story of Beauty and the Beast, it's Belle. And she is pretty. There's no doubt that Belle is pretty. But that's not what makes her the beauty. What makes her the beauty is that she's innocent and that she's kind and she's willing to give sacrificial love for another. And that's what she does in the Disney story. She sacrifices herself for her father. In our story, uh, she sacrificed herself for everyone. And you see, that's what Jesus did. Jesus came in the beauty of his holiness. And what Jesus did was he went to the cross and he hung on that cross and he took every one of our sin away. See, I told you at the beginning of this message, one man got us into this problem. The other man got us out of this problem. They were the only two sinless men that were ever born. And, and, and what happened was Adam crushed and burned and we all inherited his nature. But Jesus came and for 33 and a half years, he managed to live without sin. And the scripture said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And when he died on the cross, he did not die for himself. He didn't have to die for his sins. He had no sins. He couldn't even be killed. He laid down his life. And upon him, he took all the sin of mankind, past, present, and future, on himself. And that's why when he hung on the cross before he dropped his head, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God did forsake him and put the sin of mankind and the punishment of mankind, and he paid the price for us. And so he took away all of our sin, and he paid the ultimate price. But the good news was this. He didn't stay dead because he rose from the dead on the third day and he lives forevermore. You see, Muhammad is dead and Buddha is dead and Krishna is dead and Confucius is dead and Elvis is dead but Jesus is alive because he's risen from the dead and he lives in you and gives you life and life more abundantly. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's stand together. Boy, it looked like you were enjoying that because I know I was. (laughs) So we're going to do something here because I hope I hope that was clear to you about the predicament we're in. I hope it was clear to you. It's how you get out of the predicament and that you invite Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And we'll never, ever, ever do this on our own. And we can only do it by accepting the work Jesus did on the cross. And so I want to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. We do this every week in this church. And we don't look around. We give people a moment of privacy to make this decision. Because if you're here and you've never made Jesus your Lord, you've never accepted the work he did on the cross, he's done it already. But it's incumbent upon you to accept it. And if you've never had that moment where you've said yes and invited him into your heart, we want to do that today. Or maybe you knew him in the past and you've slipped away and you know you're away. I'm talking to you. So if you're one of those people, nobody's looking around, every eye is closed, it's between you and me and Jesus, 
If that's you, I want you to just slip up your hand just for a moment. I will not call you forward. I'm not going to single you out. There's hands going up all over the room. Anybody else want to join these folks? I will not single you out. I will not embarrass you. But you need to make that decision today. If the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart, I just want you to see you put up your hand. There's dozens of hands going up and around the room. Why don't you join these people if you know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today? All right, you can, you can lower your hands. Because I said I wouldn't single anybody out, we all, we're all going to say this prayer together. And if you raised your hand or you kind of knew you should have, but you didn't, why don't you pray with us? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That though I was a beast, and the beast lives in me, and this broken sinful nature, you took it away because you died for that sin. And then you rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I've become a child of the living God. And I will spend eternity in paradise with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a little shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.